Please join us for this year's 20th anniversary of the Mid-South Mississippi Race for the Cure to be held in downtown Jackson, Mississippi on Saturday, April 13th. You can register online at www.comenmemphismms.org. That's K-O-M-E-N-M-E-M-P-H-I-S-M-S dot org. On the menu bar, click Events and select Komen Metro Jackson Race for the Cure or call Katherine Young at 601-932-3999. That's Katherine Young at 601-932-3999. Please register today and help us save lives. Thank you. Welcome to the Susan G. Coleman Memphis Mid-South Mississippi Pink Podcast Program. My name is Katherine Young, Senior Vice President. I am excited to be here with my co-host, Miss Molly May. Hi, Molly. Hey, Miss Katherine. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be here Me again too. with another podcast talking um, about breast cancer. Me too. Our I'm... favorite subject. Exactly. <laughs> I am ready to go. I have my bottle of water and my cutie, and we have a cute guest, too. (laughs) I am so honored to introduce our guest today. Um, She is a breast cancer survivor, a recent breast cancer survivor, Um, and her name is Miss Georgia. Hi, Miss Georgia. Hi, Molly. Thank you for being here in the studio today. She's our first guest in the studio, Miss Catherine. It's new for <laughs> us. Exciting. Super exciting. Um, so, Miss Georgia, um, I wanted to talk to you um, not only about your breast cancer journey, but also about you as a person and your personal life and anything really that you're comfortable to share with us uh, and our listeners. So, I guess um, we can start with a little before your cancer journey. Okay. Um, Tell us what you do, what you do on a day-to-day basis, what you do for a living. I teach 10th grade literature. Oh, wow. And I've done that, let's see, this year is my 18th year. And my life was just going along perfectly normally like everybody else's. And I guess about in the fall of 2016... Uh, I was diagnosed with bronchitis. I had a horrible case of bronchitis. I mean, it was it was so intense. The EMTs from the local ambulance service got to know me on a first name basis because they came to my house so many times. Oh, I was blessed. constantly struggling to breathe, and I would go into these coughing episodes and just really couldn't seem to shake the bronchitis. And went to countless doctors had all sorts of chest x-rays and they said your your lungs look fine it's just your immune system is struggling it's going to take you some time to 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 get over the bronchitis and that's really where this experience started for me Uh, as I said I, I my life was just going along perfectly normally and and I assumed that, and I did have bronchitis, but I assumed that it was just 
a case that I had never had before. Just like a really severe case yeah. of bronchitis. Mm-hmm. And when you're at the doctor and they're talking to you and they're running all these tests, you assume they're right. Yeah, you of assume they know what they're doing. And that's just not necessarily the case. And if you have a gut feeling that something's not right, then you need to listen to your gut. That's exactly right. I, I think that's one of the things that um, we are definitely pushing is know your body um, yes. because no one knows your body better than you. And you are essentially um, the person or the one that controls your your um yourself and and what goes on in your body and we articulate that to our doctors but um sometimes you know the medical science behind something says that this probably isn't it is it's probably something else which um leads us to ensure that we're continue conversation and knowing that we are the best keepers of our own body Mm -hmm. and the importance of knowing your own situation i think a lot of people you know forget about that as being one of the most important things you know when changes are occurring in your body Mm -hmm. and no one else does better than you Mm -hmm. i mean doctors are still humans you know i mean there there's zero way for us to figure out every part of the human body we're going to do our dead level best obviously (laughs) and our physicians are i mean they go to school for so many years to figure it out but um, there's just no way to be able to look at another human being and automatically know. So whether you call it trusting your gut or your head or your heart mm-hmm. or whatever other part of your body you're trusting, trust it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, it was that something that you did in your case? Well, I tried to, mm-hmm. um, probably for two years prior to my diagnosis, uh, I had a lot of issues with my menstrual cycle gotcha. and so I was basically having two cycles a month and I had been anemic for several years and the, the doctors just kept saying oh well you're premenopausal that's probably what this is you should have a hysterectomy and I considered that and was really on the brink of a hysterectomy around the time I was diagnosed with bronchitis. So the hysterectomy got pushed to the side and I just tried to focus on getting past the bronchitis. And they put me on, finally they put me on steroids to control some of the inflammation. And thankfully the steroids didn't really work for me. I mean, like, uh, it had an adverse effect on me. My legs started to swell. I was puffy all over. I felt horrible. Mm. My blood pressure went up. And I just went into one of these little pop-up clinics that was near my house and went in to see the doctor. And I said, look, this is what's been going on with me for probably the last six weeks. I'm tired of it. And And I had to get a little snippy as as my mother says and my, my my mother was actually with me in the doctor's office because she was genuinely concerned too and I said I don't want a chest x-ray I want you to do something else I'm not leaving here today until you get to the bottom of this and so we agreed that he would order a cat scan 
Okay. And so the next day I went for a CAT scan and they called me and said, you need to have a mammogram done as soon as possible. They said, we see a mass on your left breast. And I was somewhat concerned, but not overly concerned because I've had callbacks for three to four years on this same breast. Mm. And so I thought it's probably just a cyst. That's what I was what was told. And scheduled the mammogram, had it done, noticed that the doctor and the nurses seemed very nervous after the the mammogram. And so they said, well, we're really not sure what this is, but you're going to need a biopsy. And then immediately started talking about the weather. And and it just, it was, I don't know, it was a very bizarre experience. Hmm. I felt like it wasn't as candid. I mean, this is cancer after all. Yeah. I, I feel like you don't need to beat around the bush. You just need to call it like it is. So I, I scheduled a biopsy. I think it was Martin Luther King Day. I didn't want to take off work to have it done. And I didn't really want to tell anybody. I, I didn't want to worry people. And I, I think on some level, I was trying not to worry myself. Mm-hmm. So I scheduled the biopsy with a, a local surgeon. And my mother was really the only person I told at the time and had the biopsy done. And I really knew the day I had the biopsy because while the surgeon was, was doing this, the sonogram, he said, this really concerns me. Mm. And just right then, I, I said to myself, this is not good. Yeah. And he said, I'll have the results in two to three days. So I want you to come back. And and I did. I came back. And he never actually said, you have cancer. Really? He just walked into the room and he said, it's it's just as I thought. And he immediately went into, it's invasive ductal carcinoma all of the the details so after he said that i don't really remember much to be Mm -hmm. honest because it's almost like you're just in a daze and all this is happening around you and and you're just you're just listening i all i remember him saying words that i was unfamiliar with he said we're going to schedule your your port surgery. Mm-hmm. Then we'll line up chemo. You need to see an oncologist, and and I, so again, I heard all these words, and I I thought in my in my head, I don't need an oncologist. I, I didn't even know what a port was mm-hmm. until yeah. this, and it was just it was a shock to my system. And as I was walking out of the doctor's office. My cousin happened to drive my mother and me to this appointment, and they were both naturally very upset, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't I didn't cry. And they just kept looking at me, and we got in the car, and we drove home, and got home, and they said, what, aren't you upset? Like, you know, and I... Why aren't you reacting the way yeah, I, was? I should I thought just, you were going to? I, I didn't know how to react because I was in such shock. And I've always been one of those people who's very practical. Okay. So I just asked myself, okay, what do I have to do next? What What are the necessary steps that I need to take 
So I, I in my head, I, I formulated a plan already, even though I, I didn't even know what I was, what I was planning or planning for. And I knew that I had a couple of friends I informed in the coming days, and they said, we feel like you need to get a second opinion. Okay. And um, I actually grew up in Dallas, Texas as a kid. And I remember hearing people talk about MD Anderson. Yes, it's where my mom went. And she just, she said she can't imagine going anywhere else. It's like, it sounds bizarre to say it's like this utopian society, but it it's like headquarters if you're a cancer patient. And I cannot <laughs> say enough about MD Anderson. I really can't. I mean, they have, they've been so great. But I got on the phone and made an appointment myself. And a couple of my friends said, you can't do that. You need a referral. You can't just get on the phone and make an appointment. You and can. I said, guess what? <laughs> I got an appointment. And... I flew, I think it was about 48 hours later, I flew to Houston and met with a radiation oncologist, an oncologist, and a surgeon to hear what they had to say. And they confirmed the diagnosis. They said, this is the most common type of breast cancer. It is, yes, ma'am. And so they said, you know, you can either get your treatment here or we can coordinate with your doctors back home. You can have some of your treatment here. It's completely up to you. And I flew home, and and the day after I got back from Houston, I had my port surgery, and that's that's how it all began. And I thought it would be simple, I guess. I know that that sounds naive, but you know, you're you're not feeling great because I knew I wasn't feeling well, but I wasn't feeling as horrible as chemo made me feel. <laughs> So when I had the port surgery, I thought, okay, I've got this. I'm just going to show up, go in there for a few hours, be done with this, move on, and go back to work. And Yeah, exactly. It's easy to, to sometimes look at the journey that lies ahead to you on paper and go, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to go here, and then I have this. Okay, now this treatment, then this surgery, and then I should be back to normal by this date. Cool. I can totally accomplish that because that's that's exactly how I looked at it. Um, but you don't necessarily always take into account the in-between as well as how it's going to affect you on the inside, because I know that I don't always take my emotions into consideration or like my mental headspace when entering really like big steps of my life. I try to look at it as logically, logically as possible, but that's not always the correct way to look at it. (laughs) I think it helps us deal with things, though, to mm-hmm. look at it like that. Like, I remember the oncologist saying, first, I want you to go to a chemo class, and they're going to give you some indication of what this might be like. And I think the chemo class was helpful, but I don't think it was as brutally honest. As like, if someone to <laughs> came to me and said, hey, we want you to do a chemo class, I would lay it out there. I would say, this is going to be horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, you are going to be incredibly constipated. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what you need to do. This is how you deal with it. And, and you are going to have days where you feel so exhausted that you're not going to be able to get your head off the pillow mm-hmm. or moments where you look at yourself in the mirror and you just lose it. You just break down because you look like one of those little hairless cats. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have hair. You don't have eyebrows. You don't have eyelashes. And you, you look very odd. So that's not what, what they said in the chemo class. It was, here what, here's what you should eat. 
you should try to exercise. So it was it was just like a course you might take, mm-hmm. but I, I just didn't feel that it really hit home for me, at least. Maybe it did for some other people, but it wasn't what you needed. It wasn't what I needed. Gotcha. And I think that's where um, tailored treatment comes in that knowing that each individual is different and experience things in a much different way and so that's one of the things that you know is good about tailoring every individual's treatment to them Mm -hmm. i agree everybody even though a lot of us have cancer everybody has a different path and so you have to you you have to figure out what works for you. I don't know that the professionals will do that. I think they're just very focused on this is this is the treatment and this is what we're here for. But there are so many other factors that play a role in this experience. And, and I had many people said to me, well, they kept using the word journey. Tell me about your journey or what's your journey like? And I just thought, I really don't like that word because a journey to me sounds like a trip (laughs) that you want to go on. And this isn't something I chose. So I try to use the word experience as much as I can because it's it was an experience. All right. You know, what I I remember at one of the first Susan G. Komen events I went to here in Jackson. I had someone come up to me when I was telling them about my experience because I say experience as well. And when I tell them, this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to my mom, and this was our experience, she came up afterwards and told me very nice things. And then she said, um, you know what I say when I refer to my experience? And I was like, what did you say? You know, do you say journey? Do you, what do you say? And she, say, she said, I say, this was my lived experience. And I was like, your lived experience? And she said, yes, because I lived through it. And when I'm dead and gone, they can say this was my experience. But while I'm still here and I got through it, I'm going to say that this is my lived experience. And I thought, that is so profound. What, what a difference one word can make when you talk about a life or death situation. Because it's life now. It's not a life or death situation anymore. It's my life. So um, I, think that's, I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Right? Yeah, a journey, a journey implies... <laughs> pictures and memories and good times and uh, I don't have a lot of pictures from what I went through but um what that's that that's amazing um that you would say that um but we're going to take a short break and tell you how you can support the Susan G. Coleman Memphis Mid-South Mississippi Pink Podcast and we'll be back with you momentarily The Memphis Mid-South Mississippi affiliate of Susan G. Coleman provides needed breast cancer services to women throughout West Tennessee and Mississippi. Your donation can help save the life of women who do not have access to breast health care. Please take a moment and donate by visiting our website at www.colemanmemphismms.org. That's www.k-o-m-e-n-m-e-m-p-h-i-s-m-s.org. Thank you for your support. Welcome back to the Pink Podcast with myself, Katherine Young, Molly May, and Miss Georgia Brown. Hey, Miss Georgia. Hi. 
Um, so I love to ask uh, the questions that I constantly get asked, and I am always asked the same two questions, and so I constantly give the same answers, and I, because I'm asked them so frequently, I like to ask them to other people as well. And I like to ask, um, were you scared, and was it a hard decision for you to make to have your mastectomy? Yes, I think I, I, definitely I was scared. I just don't know that I really gave it much thought. I felt like I had two choices. I could curl up in a ball in the corner and sit in a pool of my own tears, which I did cry ultimately, but I felt like that was one choice I had or I could just suck it up and and move on with it. (laughs) And so I tried not to be scared. And I think it helped that I I worked the entire time through this experience. I mean, I, I missed probably a total of five days of school in a span wow. of four or five months. And I, I scheduled my chemo so that it would suit me. I, I had chemo every Friday. It just so happened I didn't have a seventh period class. So I would leave my sixth period class about 15 or 20 minutes early and have my chemo, and that way it it gave me a couple of days over the weekend to recover. And, you know, I just, like I said, I just, I just dealt with it. As far as a surgical decision goes, I did not have a mastectomy. I chose to have a lumpectomy. Okay. I was in, I guess, what you could say was a unique position when I talked to both of the surgeons, MD Anderson and here in Jackson, they said to me, because of the location of the tumor, it was closer to my underarm. I also had a tumor in one of my lymph nodes under my arm. And they said, you know, we really feel like we could probably do a lumpectomy. If you want to do the mastectomy, if you want to do a double, that's completely up to you. But it should be fine to do this. And they said, you you will need radiation, but in all likelihood, you would need radiation anyway, anyway. because it was also so close to the chest wall. So it, it took me, I think that might have been one of the most difficult decisions. That took me weeks and weeks. So as any... between a mastectomy and a lumpectomy? In any, or, or a double. I, I just okay. couldn't come to that decision and... You know, my knee-jerk reaction was, I'm just having both of these things taken off. I don't need this. And what if it comes back in the other one? So I guess being a teacher, um, I'm used to research. So the first thing I did was I I had a friend. Actually, I taught her students. She contacted me, and she had been down this same path. And she said, look, I'm part of a support group at a local church. It's near the school. I really think you should meet these women and go to the support group. And it's funny because I had a a number of others who said, you don't want to be in a support group. I I mean, it's just going to be they're they're all at different stages, and they have different kinds of cancer, and they're going to be so negative. And I just... I thought, how could it be negative? Like, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. So I started, before I even went to a meeting, I started to contact some of these women and hear how they made their surgical decisions. And if we had the same diagnosis and the same staging. And I have to say, most of them said they had a mastectomy or a double. 
but again, they weren't in my position. Their tumors were located someplace else, or they might have had a different type of breast cancer or a different stage. So I, I did talk to one woman who had a lumpectomy and did a lot of research, like I said, just on my own and came to the conclusion that I felt like that would be the best for me. I have days where I have concerns or doubts where I think, gosh, did I make the right decision? Should I go back and, and just have a mastectomy? But right now, I'm, I'm happy with my decision. Good. Good for you. And I think that goes back to what you said, Miss Catherine, about um, tailoring your uh, fill, fill in the words for me. Treatment. Yes, tailoring your treatment. It goes back to what Miss Catherine said about tailoring your treatment and how every individual is different and how it's important that you take control of what's happening to your own body. And um, if any of our, and, and talking to people, just reach out, ask questions when you don't know what you're doing. So if any of our listeners in the stage where they need to, they just want to talk to somebody or they have questions, um, you're more than welcome to reach out to Miss Catherine or I at anyone at the uh, Memphis Mid-South affiliate of Susan G. Komen. You can reach us at our website when we will, um, we will tell you all that a little later, but I think it's important to, to let you know that we are always here if you have questions. Um, so, Miss Georgia, will you tell us? So, you told me you're a school teacher. So, will you tell us about your support system? Like, what happened? Because you said a little bit earlier that you didn't really talk about it when it first initially happened. That the only person you really confided in was your mom. And I get that. I totally get that. Everyone needs their mom, especially when you're talking about uh, your breasts. I mean, it's something that's incredibly feminine, right? It makes you feel feminine. Um, so tell us, did you did you ever tell your students at school? Did you ever tell your friends and family, how did, your community, how did that play out? I did tell a few close friends with whom I worked, uh, but I, I swore them to secrecy. And I couldn't really figure out how to deal with telling my students. Mm -hmm. It's funny because on some level, I felt like that would be more difficult for me to tell them, I guess, because most of them are 16 or 17. They're, they're kids, but some of them are very mature. I, I didn't know how they would take it. I, I didn't know if they would treat me any differently. And some of that decision was selfish and not really wanting to tell them because I thought I would just break down in class. So I first decided to send an email to all of the parents. Okay explaining to them what had happened, the diagnosis, the treatment, where we go from here, and what my intentions were. And my intentions were, I'm, I'm going to continue to work. I want to stay in the classroom. I need to stay in the classroom and just go about my business, my daily life, as if I'm quote-unquote normal. Because you, you come to realize you need normalcy in a situation that is not normal. So when I came back from, from Houston, I sent the email to parents. And the day after I sent the email, I decided to talk to the students. And I, I didn't really say much. I discovered that the parents talked to the students for me. They really did, did the hard work. And so all I said was the next day in the classroom, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, in my opinion, in this classroom, 
It's a non-issue. I don't expect you to do anything differently. In <laughs> fact, if anything, I expect you to work harder so that my job is at least a little bit easier. easier. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this might actually work to my work. advantage. Yes. So, <laughs> and they just could not, the reception that I got from the kids could not have been any better. And the parents and my colleagues at school. I mean, the fact that they let me even leave 20 or 30 minutes early every day, it, it just, God put me in the right place to endure this. And like I said, I just could not have asked for anything better. And kids always surprise you. Everybody says they're resilient, and they really are. I'll never forget when I when I told one particular class about my diagnosis, and he knew that I had just gotten back from Houston. He raised his hand because I asked the kids, I said, do you have any questions? And he said, yes, I have a question. And I said, okay, what is it? And he said, I want to know what the doctors in Houston said. Kids are so inquisitive. And I, I later found out that I had several students, either that had grandparents or mothers or sisters or whomever, who had been through something like this, maybe lung cancer or some other type of cancer. And so they knew what it could do. They saw what it could do. And I, I think they definitely looked apprehensive. Because, as I said before, your looks do change, and that's yeah. you you it's in your control to some degree, but you can't control everything so they they were incredibly supportive in fact, in the coming weeks, uh some of the administrators informed me that the kids wanted to do a pink day for me at Aww. school, and so if you paid a few dollars, whatever you wanted to, you could wear pink. Well, it, it was the most fun I had in the midst of this chaos. The kids came in with pink wigs, pink tights. And I'm not just talking about the girls. The boys, I think I laughed harder at some of the boys. <laughs> they just got so creative. And they raised so much money. I was able to take that money and buy a human hair wig. That is so wonderful. Wow. And when I when I was fitted for the wig and I started wearing it to school, I had a couple of girls come up to me one day and they said, Miss Brown, you just we wouldn't even know anything is wrong. You look like yourself. You you do not look different. I had gotten an eyebrow pencil somebody told me to get. And I, I learned to sort of be an artist to paint on my eyebrows mm -hmm. and. I got some fake eyelashes, and of course, the the girls loved that. They they wanted to to help me in any way that they possibly what could. A light. Yeah, so it was it was, I don't want to say fun, but it it lightened the burden mm -hmm. having the kids react in that way. And and shortly thereafter, I would I would get emails from parents periodically checking in on me or sending me flowers or bringing food to my house. And I had this mother send me an email and she said, where did you get the wig? <gasps> and so I told her and she said, did you have it dyed? To, and I said, yes, I had it dyed to match my hair color. And she said, I don't know, but my daughter has come home nearly every day saying, Miss Brown's wig looks better than your hair, Mom. Oh, bless. <laughs> so it, it speaks volumes for for wigs, you know. And that was that was another facet of this experience 
one of the first things my mother said was, okay, we have to get you a wig. We have to find out where to go to get a wig. And I said, I am not wearing a wig. No, my mother didn't wear a wig. She hated it with a passion. You know, people talk about it makes you hot mm -hmm. and it, it looks fake. And, you know, I, I was, again, I was so fortunate that the kids raised all this money along with my colleagues. And it, it really did make a difference. Uh, that was another one of those areas of this that it, it was it was my normal I could put the wig on and just not worry about the reality of the situation. So it's my so support kind. system was, was, I feel extremely fortunate. It is. That's a huge blessing. Yes. I enjoy my wig and I don't have cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I, can just put, I can just put it on and go with the day and have a good time and not worry about combing my hair. That's so, so true. <laughs> that is so true. She does. Sometimes she has long hair. Sometimes she has really short hair. She looks good regardless of what, what wig she has on that day. But it's super fun because every day I go to work, I'm like, I wonder what Miss Catherine's going to look like today. <laughs> and I'll change a wig often. <laughs> oh, it's versatile. You it can is. You can do whatever whatever you want. I know, I have, I've talked to many a cancer survivor that's told me that whenever they lost their hair with chemo and radiation, that they decided when they got their wigs, they would get multiple and they would get them. None of them were their original hair color, right? So like, say I lost, if I had lost all my hair, I would have gotten wigs that were like blonde and pitch black or brown because I've, because I've, I know what I look like with red hair, right? Like I know my whole life I have red hair, but I want to know what I look like as a platinum blonde, right? <laughs> or like some, some little piggy tail curls just all over my head. But, um, yeah, I think it's so fun. Um, and I'm so, I, it's just, that's one of the most, um, unique situations that I have heard. I've never, I've never spoken to a school teacher that, had her entire school rally around her. What school is this, by the way? Jackson Academy. Jackson Academy here in good old Jackson, Mississippi. What a fortunate, fortunate mm -hmm. situation. And an, a fortunate situation within an unfortunate one. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think it's just so great to have uh, your school um, support system that rallied around you and, and hosts, you know, things like that. And it really is a one of those things that we get the messaging out when we see schools and people do different things well, like the pink out games and things like that. It's a diverse way in order to get our message out. So that is a just a great thing to have that support system from a school it is and i don't think people realize how important it is you you because there will be some people in your life who who fall off and you won't see them and you won't hear from them mm -hmm. and it, it is hurtful but i think people do the best they can in this situation so my students my colleagues the people at my church, they really just lifted me up, constantly checked on me. The kids made me posters. They got me devotional books. They prayed with me, for me. You name it, they did it. So when, when people say, gosh, why would you want to teach high school literature? I'm always a little offended because I'll no. say, you have no idea how incredible these students are. I mean, I, I really, my experience would have been completely different had they not been by my side. So what do you Amazing. foresee in the future? I really don't know. I will say that I feel compelled to use this experience in some way. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to my minister about becoming involved in the Stephen ministry. 
it, it helps people who are going through something like a diagnosis or a death or whatever the case might be. So we're we're entertaining some ideas in, in pursuing that. And other than that, you know, I've had people ask me, will you speak at my church? Will you speak on a radio program? And, and here I am doing this wonderful podcast, which I'm so excited about. So I feel obligated um, to to speak up on as a woman because we're all in this together and we have to look out for each other. We can't just rely on physicians to do the work. I think you have to be your own advocate. And yes. if you can't be, you need someone else to be alongside you. But just talking about it as much as you possibly can, I think, is 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 the best thing you can do. I think that's a wonderful takeaway. Just communicate. There's nothing embarrassing. There's nothing. Um, I mean, it's a sad subject, but it's one that can be talked about openly. Well, and we really should talk about it more because so many women like myself think, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. I'll remember going to my OBGYN and every single year he would say, oh, do you want to have the BRCA test to see if this is in, in your genes? Is this possibly genetic? And I knew I didn't have I had other kinds of cancer in, in distant relatives, but not breast cancer. So in my mind. I just thought, I don't, I'm not going to get breast cancer, so I don't know why you're so worried. But most breast cancers that are diagnosed are not genetic. No, you're very correct. So I feel like it's it's something we all need to talk about. And I think prevention is, is another area that I feel passionate about. Yes, that's key. So we'll end on that note of early detection and awareness is the key to great treatment. Thank you for joining the Susan G. Coleman Memphis Mid-South Mississippi Pink Podcast. For additional information to donate or support this podcast, visit our website at www.kommenphismms.org. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the D.L. Dykes Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason.